The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world. And but a little bit of a different take we take on it. Our take is we look at the things going on in the world from the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. So we care about what's going on in the world, but it's not just kind of a news report, which you could read in you know, any of the social media platforms. You could read it in, there's still, I believe, there are still some printed hard copies of newspapers. And But we kind of look at it through the perspective of, we view this from the point of view of values and our Catholic social values. Tom, I think as we're kind of in the beginning of the new year, and I also think as we are, you know, on the weekend of the celebration of the birthday with Dr. Martin Luther King, and that's going to be our first conversation, I think it might not be a bad idea for us to run down again for our listeners as we begin the year what are those major values that make up kind of the constellation of Catholic social teaching? Tom, you did this so well the last <laughs> time. So why don't you just kind of let's refresh my mind and refresh our listeners' minds about what those values are that we bring to bear on the current events and what's going on in our world. Sure, Monsignor. Well, you know, uh, in 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 uh, in the Catholic Church, we have something I think a special gift. It's called Catholic social teaching, and of those Catholic social teachings, which come from papal encyclicals and the lives of the saints and the work of the Church and the work of agencies like Catholic Charities throughout the world over the last two thousand years, we have these seven principles that we kind of have like diluted down to what sort of have to animate the life of. Christians and, and and the church in the world to make the world a better place, like we try to do on Just Love. And those seven principles, Monsignor, there are two first foundational principles. And the first principle is the life and dignity of the human person. The very simple way of kind of understanding that is the uh, notion that uh, all human life is sacred from conception until natural death, um, that we believe that every human person is made in the image and likeness of God and deserves the utmost respect and dignity. And a corollary to that, Monsignor, is the second principle, which is related to it, um, which is the call to family, community, and participation. And an easy way to remember that is all human life is not only sacred, but is also social. Uh, we, as you know, are social beings. We grow up within families. Families live within communities. Communities live within neighborhoods, neighborhoods within countries, countries within the world. Hey, Tom, so I, I, w I just want to know, when you say everybody's social, does that mean we have to have a lot of parties? I think we do. Okay, I just wanted to <laughs> I wanted to make sure that 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 was included in in being social. Well, Monsieur, you always say, and I and 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 uh, and you know, you I only met him uh, just very briefly one time many many years ago. But you knew Harry Fagan, as right. you know, he always said we don't like to have grim do gooders. So I think partying right. has to be part of Catholic social teaching. Good, so I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the second part. And then the third part in this year is rights and responsibilities, simply the belief that, you know, the Catholic Church believes in human rights across the board. Um, and, you know, we we uphold, you know, the human rights here in, the, in our own country and all around the world. But as a corollary to that, we also believe that 
because we have these rights, we also have corollary responsibilities to be sure we respect the rights of others and the rights of all people. So rights and responsibilities are related and they wind up going together. The uh, fourth um, uh, teaching of Catholic social teaching is the option for the poor and the vulnerable. This goes back to the teaching in uh, the Hebrew Bible from the, the prophets uh, that always said that the um, that the, the, the nation of Israel was always judged on how it took care of the least among us. And the least among us at that time were the widows and the orphans and those who were sojourning in Israel. And so to today, you know, we have to always care for those who are on the margins. For a good example of that one, is we have people who are sojourning with us today here in the United States who, who, are, who are coming to us and sojourning. So we need to want be mindful of how we care for them. The fifth principle is the dignity of work and the rights of workers. Um, this is essential. This also goes way back to the beginning of uh, the Bible in Genesis, when we remember that that first person who was working on those first six days was God. And because God, we're made in the image and likeness of God, and we have dignity like God does, we too are uh, called to work in our lives. And because the work that God did had inherent dignity in creating the world, and we share in that, that, we, that the work that we do has inherent dignity too. The you know, I wanna, Tom, I, I, I want to know, because as part of that whole thing, we like um, we believe that a very good instrument of protecting the dignity of work and the dignity of workers are unions and collective bargaining, that that's important. Do you think God belonged to a labor union? Uh, well, I always uh, like to I, the story and I, I, I heard this said once that it's interesting that um uh that we have the labor unions monsieur to thank for the weekend because god believes in a six-day work week so i'm not sure okay all right that's a good way of but certainly we welcome the contributions of organized yeah. labor okay. certainly if for the weekend if not other things um the uh sixth principle monsieur is the principle of solidarity which simply says that we have to treat not just our neighbor across the street but our neighbor across the world with utmost respect, because as I said before, we're all made in the image and likeness of God. And as you, Monsignor, no, Monsignor, the very last one is one that's dear to my heart, care of God's creation, that simply said that we were given creation by God on those first uh, days in the creation story in Genesis as stewards of the earth. And so therefore that means that there's a certain responsibility we're called for ownership of uh, things of this world. And so all to, in totality, Monsignor, those are our seven principles. There are guideposts that lead us through the world, and, and that's kind of how we try to move forward. Well, wonderful, Tom. Thank you so much. And, you know, every now and then we do a little bit of a kind of a remedial thing, and it helps me to kind of uh, keep those fresher in my mind. And I think it's good that our listeners know the prism through which we view what's going on in the world. Um, so let's go to our first guest, who is uh, Jonathan Eag, who has written a book called King a Life, a biography of uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And I am delighted that Jonathan Eag has um, agreed and is joining us today on Just Love as we are in this Dr. Martin Luther King weekend when we will celebrate a national holiday on Monday, January 15th. Uh, Jonathan Eag, thank you for taking the time to being with us on Just Love. Thank you for having me. 
Great. So I know I can see you on Zoom. You can see me, but our listeners are only hearing our voices. So could you kind of help our listeners a little bit to just give a little picture of your background and how did you come to write this book on uh, Dr. Martin Luther King? Well, I'm a longtime journalist and I transitioned to writing books about 20 years ago. My first book was a biography of Lou Gehrig. And then I did a book about um, Jackie Robinson. I wrote a book about the invention of the birth control pill. I wrote a book about Muhammad Ali. And as I was writing about Muhammad Ali, I was interviewing people who knew Martin Luther King Jr. And it just sort of stunned me for a minute to think that there were still hundreds of people alive who knew him and, and dozens, maybe scores who knew him very well. And that there was an opportunity to get to know King in a new way, in a more uh, human way, because, you know, I'm almost 60 years old. And, and in the course of my lifetime, we've turned him into a monument and a national holiday in a thousand streets. And we've forgotten that he was a person. And there were people alive who knew him, who could call him friends. And I wanted to write a more intimate portrait of King. That was really what I set out to do. So I'm, I'm maybe going to diverge just a little bit. That That's great. But um, it seems at least you have a certain penchant for sports people. Yeah, I'm a big sports fan, but I'm, uh, I guess three out of my six books have been sports books. Um, but uh, King wasn't much of an athlete. <laughs> um, uh, so, that's okay. He had, he had other attributes. So I got, I got to ask, because we always ask this, are you a Yankee fan? Oh yeah. Oh, you can, oh, we're going to have a nice interview because, <laughs> because we, we just cut off the mics of the Boston Red Sox fans. There you go. If they're on the show, they uh, they, they they don't get to get to say much. Um, I knew I liked you for a good reason. <laughs> um, so uh, so okay, I think you you kind of you said something that struck me as a little interesting about how you know we've made uh, Martin Luther King into a monument, or we've made him into this. So let me ask a little bit of a question, maybe this is a little bit down and we'll go back into his life a little bit more, but, you know, uh, is he dated? I mean, is he, fit, is, he, is he still relevant as more than a historical figure in the incredibly different environment that we live in today? Yeah, I think he's hugely relevant. And okay. part of the problem is that um, we have rendered him somewhat irrelevant by focusing only on the comfortable parts of his work, of his message. You know, it's easy to talk about his dream of brotherhood that, you know, black children and white children should hold right. hands and we should be judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. But that is only a tiny sliver. We're choosing to embrace the easy parts of his message because in that same speech, I have a dream August 28th, 1963, he also talked about police brutality, about reparations, about the fact that American democracy would not be complete until it fully embraced and treated as equals the people who had been mistreated for so long. Um, so he is somebody who's trying to live up to his ideals and pushing the whole country to live up to the ideals that we maintain in the Bible and in the Constitution. And, and we need those kinds of um those kinds of idealistic moral voices today, um, but we actually have to read his words again, and not just the uh, not just the easy ones. That's interesting, and I think that's very good point. I think one of the things, and I think you may bring this out in in the 
in your book, I think you do, is he also came to speak out, I believe, against the war in Vietnam. Absolutely. And and that didn't didn't sit very well with the sitting president at the time. Am, am I recalling that correctly? You are. In fact, it didn't sit well with most of the country. You know, we forget King is, uh, is, is revered now, but in the last years of his life, 70% of Americans said they disapproved of Martin Luther King. And it was in large part because he was speaking out against the war in Vietnam, which was still popular, but he was also speaking out about Northern segregation, Northern racism in places like Chicago and Los Angeles and Philadelphia and New York. And that really angered a lot of the, the liberal white supporters who were fine as long as he was attacking racism in Birmingham. But when he starts talking about their backyards, he, he fell out of favor. And, um, and that, that did not stop King. You know, he could have just settled for the, the easier path and, and, and continued to work on voting rights in the South. But he felt called to speak out on what he saw as hypocrisy in the North. We're speaking with Jonathan Eag, who has written an acclaimed biography of Martin Luther King entitled King of Life. So you just kind of introduced something which you said was one of the goals of your book, that you wanted to get him to know him in a more intimate way with people who actually knew him. So um, let me ask you a broad question, but right to the point. So what drove, what motivated him? Was it self-aggrandizement? Was it his own power? Was it ideology? Was it religious? What 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 motivated, what drove him? Far and away, it was his relationship with God. Um, he had very little interest in power, in ego. Um, he was a true believer. He said he, he never stopped being a minister. He, he felt his job was to preach to the nation, to save the, to save the nation's soul. And I think that you can only look at it that way when you, you when you see that this is a man whose own government was trying to destroy him. They were wiretapping his phones. They were um, sending tapes of, from his hotel rooms to his wife to try to destroy his marriage. They were disseminating information about his personal life to the media. Um, he was under attack by fellow activists, by, by black leaders who thought he was too conservative, and he never stopped. He easily could have just said, okay, I got it. I'm done. I get the message. Someone else can take over. But that would have made a mockery of his relationship with God and his faith in 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 um, a higher power. Ah, the, the interest. So uh, I'm, I'm I'm a little bit older than you, uh, but I'm not old enough to have been kind of very aware of kind of some of the intricacies of the civil rights movement. I I came more of age. Um, with Vietnam, so a little bit later than that. But the question which I um, would ask you to reflect a little bit, Bon, because I know it's made some conversation. Did he have a relationship with uh, Malcolm X? Um, they didn't know each other very well, but they okay. certainly um, related uh, one to another, mostly through the media. Uh, okay. They met once. And actually, Malcolm tried to meet him a second time, but got to Selma to try to uh, talk to King and found that he was in jail. Um, but it's very interesting because, you know, Malcolm X and a lot of other black activists tried to, to sort of use King to make themselves appear like the more dangerous alternative, um, the more radical. And it was a way of appealing to their audiences by saying, you know, 
King is is working with the white man. I, I don't think there's any point in working with the white man. Right. Um, we need to fight on our own. And um, King was always receptive to learning from them, even though he was getting beat up by them sometimes. And um, there's a great moment that I talk about in the book when King is marching through Mississippi with, um, with Stokely Carmichael. And Carmichael is calling for black power and trying to get King to say black power. And King won't say it, you know, because it sounds violent. Um, but Carmichael falls in love with King and King, you know, begins to learn what Carmichael's about and, and what motivates him. And King begins to incorporate some of Stokely Carmichael's messages in his speeches. So King is always learning and, and he's learning from Malcolm X too. Um, I think that as they both got older, they, they became more alike. I think they, you know, had they both lived, we might've seen them, um, in a genuine re relationship, maybe even a working relationship. Ah, so, um, Okay, so what if what would be one thing or a few things that you learned in your biography that you think our listeners may not have any awareness of or are not as aware of that you think is important for the understanding of of Martin Luther King? Well, there's so many things. First of all, most people don't know that he was born Mike King. Okay. And uh well, went by I Mike didn't know most that. Of, most of I his uh, childhood and even into college, he was still called Mike and ML. That was his his name. He was not born Martin Luther King Jr. His father, um, who was born a sharecropper, um, his father changed his name after a trip to Germany and learning about um, Martin Luther um, and then came home and told his son, guess what? We both got a new name. So <laughs> uh, ML, uh, as everybody called him, was a really ambitious kid. From an early age, he tried to sneak into kindergarten a year early and got caught and kicked out and came back and then skipped a couple of grades. Um, he was incredibly charming. The women loved him. He was almost always dating um, more than one woman at a time, even from like adolescence. But what's, um, I think, you know, Another thing that I really wanted to stress with this book is the importance of his wife, Coretta Scott King, because even though he wasn't faithful to her, and even though he failed to really welcome women into leadership positions in the movement, he understood that Coretta was a driving force, not just the woman who stayed behind and took care of the kids. She was um, an intellectual powerhouse who really pushed him to think more um, ambitiously and to think more broadly about um, his activism that when they won the when he won the Nobel Peace Prize, it was Coretta who said, "We have a greater responsibility now to think globally, to think about human rights, not just civil rights." Um, so I don't think Coretta's ever really gotten her due, and I, I certainly wanted to accomplish that with this book too. So, um, so uh, talk a little bit more about what you you know mentioned a little bit, um, kind of the government antagonism towards him and how they attempted to undermine him. Now, I mean, when we say government, I mean, we have 50 states, we have Congress, we have the president, we have administrative branches, we have all of that. Um, uh, so I'm going to ask a question which you're going to have to dissect. So was it a concerted effort of all branches of government across the board to undermine him or was it some rogue people or say a little bit, give, give me and our listeners a little bit of sense of the campaign. If it was such yeah. to discredit him. 
it was a pretty comprehensive campaign. I would say the judicial branch didn't didn't treat him too badly, but the other branches were <laughs> were pretty rough on him. And right. and here's what happened. So when King begins to emerge as a as a national force, the FBI what, initially. What year are we talking about? Talking about uh, 1955 and 56 okay. when he's leading the Montgomery bus boycott. Right. And then just a few years later, as he begins to try to take his work nationally in the late 50s into the early 60s, the, the federal government begins to see that that he um, they begin to monitor his activities. And at first, J. Edgar Hoover in particular is concerned that King might be associating with communists and former communist uh, members of the Communist Party of the United States. And King is associating with some of them. Um, so J. Edgar Hoover gets permission, gets authority from Robert F. Kennedy, grants him approval to start wiretapping phones and to check in on, on King's activities. They quickly discover that he is not remotely interested in communism, but by this time they hear him on the phone talking to women other than his wife, with whom he's clearly having relationships, and that becomes an obsession. And it becomes not just J. Edgar Hoover's obsession, it becomes an obsession of the president. Um, LBJ in particular is encouraging this activity. Uh, they share this information with the media, they share this information with members of Congress, and they say very explicitly that they view him as a threat. Well, why is a private citizen, a minister, a moral leader, um, an activist, somebody who's working to help pass legislation that the president is putting forward, why is that person seen as a threat? Well, J. Edgar Hoover says it pretty clearly in some of his memos. He says that he's a threat to the status quo. He's a threat to the power structure as we know it now that black people might demand a share in what in the power that white people have been hoarding for so long. And that's what really drives the campaign. And they do work very effectively to undermine King and, and to make his life more difficult. But it, um, that, is, that is a fascinating thing. But, you know, if, if I looked at the outcomes, it didn't work, correct? Well, I don't know about that. First of all, they absolutely succeeded in dividing the civil rights movement. Okay. Part of the reason that King and Malcolm X and Stokely Carmichael are rivals is because the FBI is is spreading information about all of them through the media and to each other. Um, it also undermines King's credibility. So why is King unpopular in the last years of his life? Why is the New York Times bashing him for speaking out against Vietnam? Why is the Washington Post attacking him? In part, it's because all these reporters have read the transcripts from his hotel rooms and from his conversations with these women that he's having affairs with. So they think he's a hypocrite and that affects their coverage and that affects King's ability to raise money. So did they did they succeed in undermining King and in, in, in dividing the civil rights movement? I think they did. OK, listen, I just I posed it as a question because yeah. as someone who was not familiar? I mean, I knew generically stuff like that. You know, it 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 didn't seem to have the effect that they want. But well, but if I, you want to take it to another level, um, they planted the information that would make some racist white person think it's a good idea to assassinate Dr. King, right? Because yes. you have Jagger Hoover, the nation's most respected lawman, saying that he is most American. He is saying literally that King is America's most notorious liar and and producing a memo that he sends to every bureau office saying that he is a threat. So that does create the kind of conditions yeah. that might make a lone gunman decide that he can be a hero. Well, you know, uh, we're speaking with Jonathan Eag, who is 
the author of King, A Life, a recent biography of Martin Luther King, uh, about Martin Luther King and various aspects of, of his life. But, you know, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth. It's going to be me speaking, is that some of the same issue that is 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 raised today when politicians make very hateful divisive types of of language that then do they create an atmosphere in which people with other types of issues kind of then go off and do violent uh hateful things and i to be honest i think there's a legitimacy to to kind of saying that an atmosphere kind of grows. Sometimes people may not be stable or maybe um, in other ways are social to do those things because the environment is created. So I, I have learned a lot and I think I stand uh, corrected by saying, you know, it probably did have a significant impact. I think I think that's I appreciate that. And I think when you throw racism into the mix, that some people are already uh, predisposed to view white to view black people as as inferior, dangerous, um, threatening, then, um, you know, the stakes are even higher. Yeah. And I'll, get, I'll tell you, you know, a, a little bit of a personal observation. A few years ago, I was at the beach and I was I was there by myself and I was just kind of there, but there were a group of guys, men, you know, nearby enough and they weren't being quiet so I could overhear them, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just quoting, they were making rather lewd remarks about some of the women who were passing by, et cetera, et cetera. And one of them said, well, if the president can make those remarks and still get elected president, then it's okay for us to do it. You know, I don't want to draw a thing saying that's how the whole world feels, but there are people who kind of are given license when things are put out there and and they do things which are which are wrong. Yeah, I agree. And J. Edgar Hoover knew that. He was no he was no he was not a newcomer to this kind of uh, environment and he knew the consequences of and that's why he he spread that information. He was he was looking for the um he was looking to make King's life difficult at and, the very he least. Did. He certainly and, did. Yeah. Um, say a little bit about, um, we talked a little bit about Vietnam and you talked about some of, some of the other issues, which, you know, don't make the, I have a dream. They don't make the, you know, as much there. Say a little bit about his movement towards economic justice and concern with workers. This is another reason that uh, the government viewed him as a threat. You know, in the last year of his life, he was planning what he called the Poor People's Campaign. And it was basically going to be Occupy Washington, D.C. They were going to bring thousands of people to the nation's capital. They were going to pitch tents and build shanty towns, and they were going to stay until the American government agreed to make fundamental economic reforms. King wanted a new kind of democratic socialism um, that had much bigger safety nets. That included, you know, guaranteed income and guaranteed jobs and and guaranteed health care. And he was determined that this was going to be the new wave. He was doubling down on his beliefs that, you know, all people are created equal and the government had a responsibility to take care of people in need. 
And uh, and this made this also made him unpopular. The government viewed this as a great threat, and they they um, once again you know ramped up their surveillance of him because of the threat of the Poor People's Campaign. So King was was growing and evolving. I think he was always a radical. Um, his radicalism rooted in Christianity, but he believed that this was what the Bible taught that we have to take care of the poor, that all of us really are equal in God's eyes. And he wanted government to try to live up to those words. So 50 years later, today, um, even a little longer, um, we're celebrating Martin Luther King Day as a national holiday. If there were a few things that we should continue to put front and center in the world where today about him, about from him, what are the lessons we should take away from his life that are really incredibly relevant today? Well, I think we should, first of all, remind people to read his works, not just I have a dream. If, at the very least, if you're going to talk about I have a dream, read the first half of that speech, too, because that's about economics. Right. It's about uh, reparations. It's about atoning for the sins of slavery. It's about police brutality. Um but I think, you know, King's message is, is hugely relevant today because he's asking us to think about not just ourselves. He's asking us to think about society and the larger responsibility we have to make the world a better place. And, and I think, the, you know, these days we're all a little more selfish than, we, than we'd like to be. Right. But we're also, um, we're divided. You know, we are, we're, we're only listening to the messages we want to listen to. And, you know, King's great power was his ability to speak across demographics across racial lines across geographic lines and and i think that you know if people will listen to him again we we can see that uh, there's still there's still room in our lives for moral leadership and 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 for living by certain ideals so you, let me let me just have a conversation with you about this you know when i wake up in the morning and you see everything that's going on in the world and the divisiveness that you talk about some of the language I say to myself, um, boy, this world is awful. Look at what all how bad things are. I've never seen anything like this before. And then I go back a little bit and I remember some of the language in the Vietnamese War and all of that. It wasn't all kind of sweetness and light, you know, throughout American history. And didn't we didn't we lose some two million people or so in the Civil War? I mean, so, you know, and yet and yet having said all that. It does seem to me. The ability for us to talk to each other these days is far less than when I was much younger. And, you know, I don't know if if, you know, I'll use it, the nonviolent, civil disobedience way of Martin. It seems like it's uh, passe in the world we live in. Everybody just wants to scream at each other. Now, that's maybe a little bit frustrating of me. And please give me some hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly agree that it feels like it's harder to reach yeah. people today. And it, it feels like um, we can't do anything to change the world anymore. And there's a tendency to want to give up. So um, what I tell myself in these times is that, you know, King said that the, the arc of the universe is, bends toward justice. Um, the long arc of history um, bends toward justice. But, I, but he didn't say that it bends by itself. We have, to, we have to help bend it. 
And the other thing is that, you know, if this guy didn't lose hope, if this guy who was stabbed in the chest, whose home was bombed, who was attacked by the Klan, who had his own government wiretapping his phones and, and mailing packages to his wife, if, if this guy didn't lose hope, well, then, you know, we have to somehow find a way to, to keep going, too, and to keep working at it. You know, that that is a very good point. But let me go back to a question I asked you before, which I think is one of the challenges that we have um, right now. You said what was one of the major, if not the major motivating factor to him was his relationship with God. And so I'm going to now speak a little bit um, self-accusatory. We people who are kind of in religion, we're not doing such a good job because so many Americans no longer find their fundamental values or inspiration or meaning from religion. And so this is I'm, this is me speaking, I think, but people look for those kind of fundamental things. And so I think too many, too many of us as Americans have substituted ideology and politics for religion. And that makes it a lot difficult, much more difficult for us to, to talk. So I think you're, you're noting his relationship with God was probably pretty important in him not giving up. Yeah, no question about it. And it is worth remembering that when King started his career, 75% of all Americans belonged to a religious institution and 50% of all Americans had their butts in a, in a church every given, on any given Sunday. And, yeah. and those, those numbers uh, now seem, you know, astonishing. Um, but things change, you know, yep. uh, and, 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 and maybe people will find they need um, to think yep. about something bigger than themselves again. They do. Hey, you've been so generous with, uh, with us. Um, and um, you got to give a plug. Where can people get your book? Uh, you can get them anywhere. Uh, your local independent bookstore is my first choice, but Amazon's got the books too. And um, you can get more information and find out about where I'm speaking at my website, which is um, jonathanig.com. Hey, thank you so much, Jonathan. Uh, we've just had a, I've just had a wonderful conversation where I learned a whole lot. I'm sure you listeners have also learned a whole lot. Jonathan Ugg, who is the uh, author of a recent acclaimed biography of Martin Luther King, King Alive. Jonathan, thanks for taking the time and being generous with us on Just Love. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Great. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just than it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Just Love. Just Love God. Just Love Your Neighbor. Just Love Yourself. And our world will be more just than it will be more compassionate. Certainly, without a doubt, as we are uh, during this Martin Luther King birthday national holiday weekend, we are talking about those things which make the world more just and more compassionate. Certainly, the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King is that, um, you know, with probably more of a focus on justice. And as we heard in our 
recent conversation, sometimes when you focus on justice, it creates a rift, it creates tension, it creates uh, adversity for those who, you know, who whose place in line might be disrupted because other people need also a place in line. So sometimes it's a little bit rough, the work for uh, for for justice. Hey, Tom, I know you are <clears throat> you are significantly younger than I am, but share with our listeners a little bit your either remembrances or not personal remembrances, but when you hear the name Dr. Martin Luther King, what do you think of? You know, Monsieur, I mean, when I was growing up, Dr. King, you know, and, and I, you know, I was four years old when he was assassinated. Okay. So when I was coming up in grammar school, um he you know was kind of a presence that we would wind up learning about and and i think by that time you know this is later grammar school like sixth grade seventh grade eighth grade uh it was it was sort of when the mythology when you and jonathan were talking before about the mythology started to build so i really grew up around that time and and uh and and it was for me i mean from what i remember i remember uh, uh it was it was kind of a a time, a little bit of more, I, I don't, I don't want to say racial unity, but I think people were starting to come together to appreciate Dr. King in a very different way. And, and I can remember when I was in, I, I think it was either in college or just thereafter was when the national holiday was declared. And, and I think if you remember, there were votes that were taken, you know, all over the country uh, regarding this as to which states were going to have it. And finally, yep. uh, it was signed into law in, in, by the federal government. So I think that there was there was an appreciation of Dr. King at that time. Um, so I, I, I think he was just a, you know, a standard bearer for justice. I would put him up there with Gandhi as uh, someone who you could admire that sort of was, if you will, a secular saint. That's yeah. kind of the way I think that we kind of thought about. OK, you know, intriguing, interesting. I learned uh, uh, a lot from our conversation with Jonathan Ige in and as I said to him, I do not have a lot of firsthand um, knowledge of the um, of the civil rights movement. Now, I was I was a little bit older, um, so I remembered a little bit, but I wasn't super aware. And so, my personal recollection of Dr. Martin Luther King was kind of very much towards the end of his career, the March on Washington, the stuff that had a lot of notoriety. Some of that early stuff in the mid fifties, I don't know that much about. I mean, I I know a little bit. So my kind of recollection was when he was on the national stage, um, and when there was kind of a lot of media attention, and also when after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, there was the passage of the Civil Rights bill in i think it was 1963 mm -hmm. i think when it was passed um well it may have been 64 I, I i actually it was after the assassination i believe of 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 john f kennedy but i'm mm -hmm. not not certain about that so anyway so anyway so i learned a lot from the um from my conversation with jonathan i about you know, some of the things I was less less familiar with. So, 
So why don't we go to our next guest? I'm delighted. Um, our next guest is Tyler Gaston, who is a Pierre Toussaint uh, Mother Cabrini scholar pursuing a master's degree at the City University of New York City College. Tyler Gaston, thank you for joining us on Just Love. Thank you for having me, sir. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you. Um, how's school going? It, it's it's pretty good. Uh, I can't lie. the The first semester was definitely, I definitely underestimated it how hard uh, higher education would be, but I got through it, um, and I'm just I'm ready to start it again in a few weeks. Great, but you got through, uh, you got through four years of higher education at City College, didn't you? I did, yeah. I, I I have to say the the four years of undergraduate level was definitely easier than my first semester and a master's level. Uh, I don't know how to explain it, but... Well, Tyler, I'm older than you. I'll explain it to you, okay? Okay. Bachelor, master, higher level. It's that simple. You're yeah. supposed to be harder. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, um, but I'm but I'm glad you got through the first semester. Is yeah, thank you. Is a master's program you're in? Is it a one year program, two year program? How long? It's a two year program. Uh, with practicum starting this coming semester, uh, I'm gonna be working at a site called Athena Psych in the Bronx. Um, okay. getting my own patient, my own Rolodex of patients, and my second year is gonna be a combination of classes and a full year internship. Wonderful. That's great. So I want to go back to that because I want to ask you a little bit about mental health and mental health counseling. But before we do that, for our listeners, um, what I mean, we get the scholar part, okay? And you just confirmed the fact that you're studying hard because you're getting a master's degree. So you confirmed the scholar part. But what's this Pierre Toussaint thing and the Mother Cabrini thing? How's all that fit in? Well, so I'll start by explaining a little bit of who they are. Uh, so okay. the Venerable Pierre Toussaint, he was born in Haiti as a slave. He died in New York as a free man. Um, his efforts were to try, he started the, open up the first black school, black um, Catholic orphanage and school in New York City. Um, and his efforts were just trying to give back to his community and make sure everybody felt loved and felt connected. And same goes for Mother Cabrini. She opened up orphanages and schools in Italy and um, their their commitment to serving their community and sticking together through faith has just passed down the generations. And has that's what we as Pierre Toussaint and Pierre Toussaint Mother Cabrini scholars kind of embody. Um, we are not just in a program that gives us money. Um, yes, they help us financially, but our main purpose, our main cause is to go out there and be professionals, be people for others, serve others, help our communities be better for us, for past generations and for future generations. Um, so as a Pierre Toussaint Mother Cabrini scholar, um, those myself and those um, other students who are with me, those other scholars, we are in majors or are on track to go into careers that involve public health. So I study psychology. We have students in biomechanical engineering. We have 
Um, well, we actually have a lot of engineering students. We have other students going into psychology, sociology, social work, things like that. Those, those things that will go into us providing anything regarding to health or mental health to better our communities. Tyler, thank you for explaining that. So let me let me then ask you, because I'm I'm for a variety of reasons, I'm very interested in this. Um, why did you choose the field of mental health counseling? Well, I've always felt this calling to service for others. Uh, when I was younger, for a very long time, uh, I wanted to be a police officer. Okay. Um, so the, when I got to high school, I still wanted to be a police officer. So I made my plan. I was going to go to school. I was going to go to John Jay, study criminal justice and minor in psychology. Because as time went on, I realized that if I'm going to be working with people, I probably should take a couple courses on how to de-escalate situations and how to understand people's feelings and be more empathetic. Um, so that was that was my goal for a long time. And when I got to my senior year, I was applying. Uh, I had to jump through some hoops with John Jay. And unfortunately, they couldn't admit me due to them being full. Um, so I made my way to City College, but they didn't have a criminal justice <laughs> major. So I said, okay, they have one of the two. I'll start, I'll take psychology and then I'll kind of just move from there. Right. Um, and as I just went along in my first year and towards the end of my senior year, I kind of shifted away from wanting to be a police officer. And after taking psychology courses, I had a shift just randomly in my junior year during the COVID, uh, the COVID era. Uh, and I said, you know, I think I want to, I think I want to go into mental health. Um, I recognized how vital it was and how much of like how the profession was just so undervalued and, and very lacking. And I just wanted to be a part of the cause to bring it up and provide a service that everybody needs. So Tyler, thank you so much for that. But, but say a little bit more about why you think the profession is undervalued. Well, I think the stigma of mental health is is the reason is the main reason. Um, a lot of people think mental health. If you see if you say mental health or you say, I uh, you might need to talk to a therapist. First thing that pops to a lot of people's minds, I'm crazy. Right. And it's not it's not about that. You know, it's not just you don't have to be crazy to go see a therapist. You know, mental health is everything it's your mind it's your emotions it's how you think how you feel how you get through the day how you think about yourself how you think about others it's everything that encompasses who you are so if one part of you is lacking you have mind body and soul if your mind is lacking then how do you how would you expect your body and soul to be fulfilled they can't really pick up the pieces in one and they all it's just all interconnected so, so just being part of the Oh yeah, yes, yeah, sir. No, I, I want I want you to go a little bit deeper on that because I think you're really into into something. Use the word stigma. So, and I mean, we talk about. I mean, one of the issues that's that's real is teenage suicide. Mm -hmm. That's real, and I suspect that a fair number of teenagers who do commit suicide did not avail themselves of mental health counseling, whether 
they didn't have access or they chose not to whatever. What do we do to break down that stigma? How do we, what are some of the cultural issues, the demographic issues, the age issues, the gender issues? What do we need to address so that it does become more valued and destigmatized? Let's just take in your own communities that you're familiar with. Uh, well, I would say the main the main thing would be education and normalization. Um, I think people have these stigmas due to word of mouth passed down through generations or through their communities. Uh, my community, for example, they, they're not so keen on mental health or therapy. You know, they're very against it. They think that you know it's for the crazies, uh, so right. to speak. Um, and that's that's the belief I grew up on. Um, yeah. And so I kind of found my own path and I realized that it was absolutely false. Yeah. Um, so just the regular, just educating people on what mental health really is, what therapy is really meant to be. Yeah. Um, thinking like discuss, discussing diseases, uh, mental health disorders, excuse me. Um, having people understand that if you're having a, da a bad day, or you're feeling really down every day, maybe it's not because you're feeling down. Maybe there's something else that's lacking deep within yeah. that you may just need to talk to somebody about mm -hmm. and normalizing it. Um, I think we're doing a great job now, my generation, um, through social media. Um, people are becoming more active and kind of breaking that cycle that of not wanting to go to therapy, um, ignoring your mental health. Mm -hmm. um, and it's going to take a little while, but the more it's out there, the more information that's available, because there's a lot of information that's available, um, the more we educate people, especially our young people, the more likely the, the cycle is gonna break for the future generations. So Tyler, thank you for taking the time. And uh, I got two things I gotta say to you. One is go back to studying because we need people like you who are kind of doing this and you gotta be good at it because we want, when you're interacting with clients or patients, we want you to be good. So they do benefit from it. And the second thing is when you get your degree, come back and talk to me because I want to see if we got a job for you at Catholic Charities. All right. We'll do. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay. Thanks for being with us. All right, thank, thank you for you having for taking, taking the time. Just love, thank just you. love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. Our world will be more just and more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. God, neighbor, self, our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. You know, we spoke on this Martin Luther King weekend about issues of justice, of caring. And as our guest said, that arc of just, that arc of the moral universe doesn't bend toward justice on its own. So why not this weekend? Each of us take a little time to say a prayer to reflect on how we as individuals might do our part to contribute to bending that moral arc more towards justice. Join us again next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.